the United States of America. A long-time presence in Southeast Asia, but the regional environment is changing rapidly. Political realities, climate change, digital issues, China's growing influence. Amid these myriad challenges, how will the U.S. fare? How will Southeast Asian governments respond? Join us for Engaging the Eagle, exploring U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia, a podcast series by the U.S. program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, Nanyang Technological University, Singapore. Let's begin, shall we? Hello again, everyone. Welcome to episode seven of Engaging the Eagle, exploring U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia. I'm Kevin an Associate Research Fellow at the U.S. Program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, or RSIS. And today, we're going to look at U.S.-Myanmar ties in 2023. The United States and Myanmar have a long and storied history of bilateral ties. Ten years ago, ties appeared to be on the mend, with visits to the country by U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and President Barack Obama, followed by the easing of sanctions. In recent years, however, the relationship has been defined by two crises, the Rohingya crisis that erupted in 2017 and the February 2021 coup that deposed the democratically elected members of the country's ruling party, the National League for Democracy, or NLD. In response to the crisis, the US doubled down on targeted sanctions against Myanmar officials. President Joe Biden's administration has also made it clear that it does not recognize Myanmar's current regime and even downgraded its ties in December 2022 by not replacing the then-incumbent ambassador. The prospects for a rapprochement between Washington and Napier seem dim. However, from online social movements to US support for ASEAN's position on the Myanmar crisis, there are many interesting elements of the relationship to discuss. Our speaker for this episode is Dr. Surachani Hamali Shriai, a lecturer and digital governance track lead at the School of Public Policy, Chiang Mai University. Hamali, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Kevin, for having me here. So let's start off with a basic question then. As compared to previous tense periods in the relationship, how would you describe the current state of U.S.-Myanmar ties today? Okay, so since after the 2021 coup, the relationship between Washington and Nebido seems to obviously nosedive, especially compared to the time when Myanmar opened up its country during General Teng Seng administration, that was around 2011 to 2016 onward, and also Dong San Suu Kyi's NLD leadership after the election. And the U.S. have been wielding its influence in the international community, both at the U.N. and bilaterally, to put pressure on the State Administration Council of Myanmar, also called the SAC, led by Senior General Min Aung Lai, as well as to protect the people who joined the revolutionary forces in various capacities. So simply put here, you know, things have been pretty tense between the two countries, if it can get any worse at this point. Yes, I can imagine that things are quite tense. In fact, I believe that Washington recently unveiled a new trend of sanctions against the Myanmar oil and gas enterprise, as well as five senior government officials and three companies involved in arms and equipment procurement. I'd just like to ask, how extensive is Washington's current trench of sanctions against Myanmar? And what does this suggest about the effectiveness of sanctions as a tool to address such crises? In so far, the Washington's effort to sanction against Myanmar is pretty entrenched in a way. Just like you just mentioned, there, there's this, this new sanction on Mogi, 
the Myanmar oil and gas industry, right? But even shortly after February 10, 2021, President Biden also issued an executive order imposing sanction on certain Burmese parties. And then the U.S. Treasury also froze assets of individuals and entities connected to the military apparatus responsible for the coup. After that, the U.S. commerce played along with that sanction as well. And then after that, recently this year, the U.S. also imposed sanction on any foreign individuals or entity determined to be operating in the jet fuel sector of Myanmar, uh, Burmese economies, right? So, I mean, already we have already seen many, many efforts from the U.S. to put bilateral sanction against Myanmar, right? But when it comes to the effectiveness of sanction right, regarding that, I have always been an opponent of economic sanctions in places, especially where perpetrators are the ones that control the assets. And I said that because most of the time, these are the people who are relatively more resilient to pressure than the ordinary people. And so therefore, economic sanctions or other types of sanctions will then have more dire impact on the people rather than the dictator that they were aimed at. And for a Myanmar case, we're already seeing the junta moving away from the U.S. dollar, now accepting Thai baht, Chinese yuan, and even Indian rupees as legal tenders for border trades. So the lowering reliance on U.S. dollar will also mean that sanctions will be less effective as well. So that's just something to, to kind of think about in terms of how, how much pressure that the U.S. can put on Myanmar uh, junta through sanctions. Yes, that's quite true. Sometimes even the, the very tool that the U.S. tries to use to pressure Myanmar might also just drive it further towards the U.S.'s geopolitical adversaries as well. Yeah, yeah, good point, right? Just like I just mentioned, it's China that's already available as not only just the alternative trade partner, but also as a neighbor, right? That China share border with Myanmar as well. So it only makes sense that if the Washington push hard enough, that will certainly just like you speculate that it will may have the potential that will push the Myanmar junta a little closer to the Chinese as well. And that would be not very productive for the Washington in this region. Indeed, I can imagine. In that case, since you mentioned China, I'd like to ask, what is China's position on the Myanmar crisis and how is Washington responding to it? I mean, one thing that you need to understand and think about when it comes to trying to understand Chinese position on the Myanmar crisis is that, like I just mentioned, it's a border. China share border with Myanmar, right? So therefore, it has a higher stake, relatively speaking, right, than compared to the U.S. And my speculation about being involved in Myanmar crisis at all is that it has a lot to do with containing China. Right. But for China, it's beyond that. Right, This is more than just a race for influence in the region. Myanmar can serve as a key economic pathway for Chinese Belt Road Initiative, especially with the construction of the ways from China to Yunnan region and then all the way. The plan is to go all the way, cut through Myanmar and then get out from the, the Arakan side. Right? Yes, so right. therefore, China also has plenty of investment in Chan State as well, particularly the dams and the hydropower projects. So as with a lot of ASEAN countries, right, including Thailand, it is crucial for China to play the balancing act in Myanmar crisis, meaning that they still have to play nice with the Thakmadol, with the SAC, 
whilst leaving other options open available for them. I see, I see. Yeah, it's true. China definitely has a lot of investments in Myanmar, including at the Chaopium Industrial Zone, I believe, up in Rakhine yes. province. Yes. And that one also had the oil pipelines that was yep. supposed to help China reduce its reliance on the Straits of Malacca for its oil supply. Yeah, that's correct. I'm a bit curious then, what is the current situation in Myanmar then? It was reported back in August 2023 that the elections that were supposed to be held this year were postponed indefinitely due to security concerns. But more recently, there's been news about Operation 1027 in the northern Shan state that appears to have dealt some blows to the military as well. Could you expand a bit more on that, please? Well, overall, Kevin, the situation is pretty chaotic and horrendous in Myanmar. I mean, there's no other word to describe it. And from a lot of reports out there, the conflicts have basically set the country on fire, right? There's rarely any area in Myanmar without a confrontation between the military and the pro-democracy forces, PDF, or maybe even like the local defense forces or the EAO, ZRO as well. But I think... Apart from all of that, right, I think the key point to make here regarding the situation is that the SAC is not winning this fight. And it is very important that we need to establish that they are not winning, right, because that will have implications to foreign policy with uh, from a lot of countries as well. Right. The recent reports have pointed out that the Tatmadaw only have control in about 20% of the country's township. And Minong Lai have even admitted this one in one of the interviews that he gave to a foreign media last year in May, like actually already a year. So he knew for a long time that he doesn't have control of the country, right? So then that back to the question, like who controls the rest of the country? The answer is that most of the areas are now either controlled or heavily contested by the ethnic resistance organizations, the EROs, and the local defense forces. So the story, the whole big story here is that the SAC is not winning, nor does it have control or a structural systematic control of the country at all. That's certainly true. I think one of the more long-lived narratives of the conflict is that the Tatmadaw's firepower and resources are simply too much for the uh, resistance movement to possibly make a dent in, but we can see in more recent events that doesn't seem to be holding as much water as it used to it. Do you feel that more people are beginning to realize this or is it still an underappreciated trend? I think it depends on the country that you're that you're living in in terms of like the type of information that you receive. I think a lot of neighboring countries understand this in terms of trying to track, you know, the trend and things like that. But I think a lot of Western countries' counterparts still is being, for lack of a better word, manipulated by the narrative that you had just mentioned, right? That the Tamadoy is going to overwhelm the anti-Junta forces. But in the end of the day, you know, it's not a, of course, it started off as an asymmetrical fight, right? But then when when the anti-junta forces are fighting so fiercely, it's, you know, it comes down to, and the, the junta itself also have issue within its own structure in terms of having trouble recruiting new recruits, right? And there are people who are fleeing from the troops as well. So there's a lot of complications inside of their control in terms of how much they truly have control anymore. 
in and outside of their apparatus. That also leads uh, begs another question. Is anyone in the region, any country or any government really grappling with the potential consequences of uh, further developments in this crisis? Well, particularly if the Amador continues to lose ground to the resistance and maybe try something desperate. Um, like I said, if we're talking about country in the region that particularly Thailand, China, or India, it's already in the modus operandi to play both sides, right? Whether or not the Washington like it or the other non-neighboring ASEAN countries like it or not, it's already in our interest that they have to play both ways, right? And to not bet on just one horse. Mm. And so I think the countries that are probably having trouble trying to understand are further away and not having direct stakes in in the crisis. And I can think of one particular country. In that case, then, I'd like to ask about the particular country's position, the ASEAN five-point consensus, and generally, what does this approach that Washington has adopted tell us about its view on the Myanmar crisis? Um, I think Washington is counting on ASEAN members to figure it out, right, to address Myanmar issues through the five-point consensus. However, since it is not part of ASEAN, I mean, the U.S. is not a part of ASEAN, then there's only so much that it can do to contribute to the effective implementation of the principles. Most of it come in a form of backdoor diplomacy, lobbying, right? And if one knows anything about ASEAN as a regional bloc at all, really, the consensus principle of ASEAN has delivered, of course, many, many success stories for the region but also has stumped progress time and time again, too. So let's not count on that, right? But to supplement, to be fair, right? So supplement to the limitations of ASEAN, the U.S. Congress has also passed several legislations, right? And also, yeah, like I just mentioned, of course, exactly, um, the Burma Act, which is supposedly to provide assistance for the non-SAC actor. But that's it. I feel like it served more of a diplomatic gesture rather than truly addressing the crisis. Yeah, I think you're quite right about that. It serves more of a, it was more of a political gesture, not, yeah. especially since the US is kind of distracted by other crises that are going Certainly. on right now. Even before the current crisis erupted between uh, Israel and Gaza, when Ukraine got invaded by Russia back in 2022, it cast quite a shadow over the Myanmar crisis, didn't it? Do you feel that the Myanmar crisis is getting the visibility it should deserve on the world stage, or is it still kind of not? Yeah, to me, Myanmar has experienced a series of unfortunate events, both domestically and internationally, right? Time and time again, the country is on the verge of being a failed state, right? Yet it's consistently get overshadowed by other crises in the West, particularly. First, we have Ukraine and then now Israel, I'm still personally pondering about the deeper meaning or underlying explanation for this, right? For for why Myanmar almost always get overshadowed and then bigger countries always get sidetracked when it comes to addressing Myanmar crisis. But I think I blame the U.S. a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> like, had the, had the U.S. given the same level of attention and commitment in resolving the crisis in Myanmar, as with what's happening in Ukraine or with Israel, then maybe the global media would cover the crisis in Myanmar more, right? And the world would know more about what's happening in Myanmar. 
So that's why I feel like I kind of blame the U.S. a little bit for not truly commit or not following through with what it started in Myanmar. I see, I see. Although one interesting fact, the point of data that I found when it came to the Milk Tea Alliance, that online social movement that sprouted, I believe, in 2020 or so, it's been said there were hashtag Milk Tea Alliance tweets in support of the anti-Hyunter social movement from the U.S., then from Thailand and Myanmar combined back in 2021. What do you think this suggests about the way the, the crisis was internationalized or rather it failed to resonate, but perhaps in the rest of the region? Well, it's easier to comment from far away, right? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I think one thing that we need to understand is that although Thailand shares 2,401 kilometers, I say that because that's basically a what all articles would say when it comes to talking about the relationship between Thailand and Myanmar, right? You have to cite this number. So that means we share border and we have high level of socioeconomic codependency, but the public perception of the ties toward the Burmese is not always positive. And that's the fact. After Thailand shifted from monarchy in 1932, nationalistic sentiment was needed, of course, in the, the nation building stage and we used Myanmar as scapegoat. So generation of the Thais were taught in history class about how the Burmese came, invaded our city, UTI, historical city, right? And then burned our city, used the pagoda to build the Shwedagon. But the point is, this is like a long-term indoctrination of the sense of rivalries, right? And also the sense of, oh, that's our enemy. So, and it's so fascinating to me how sticky and long-standing this negative mindset towards the Burmese can be, right? I had a chance to talk to some of my students who were active in this like Milk Tea Alliance movement. And then they admitted that, you know, before I explained to them about the situation in Myanmar, they found themselves more on the same wavelength as the Ukrainian struggle than the Burmese. Hmm. It is quite fascinating, right, that what we learn when we're young and then what that's, that can do to our mindset, right? That's quite interesting that they would feel more solidarity between right? their own neighbor. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when there's a lot of commonalities, similarities, even the condition that underlies the two coups, then the two countries are so similar. But then the public perception haven't been so supportive of the Burmese movement. Although speaking of Thailand, I'd also like to pick a bit more about how Thailand is, I mean, how you would hope Thailand is going to engage the Myanmar crisis going forward. I believe that prior to the current government, the government under General Prayut was a bit more, shall we say, accommodating towards the military junta over in Napier They even had some secret meetings behind closed doors, right? What do you hope to see coming from the new government under PM Shweta? It's two separate things, right? What I hope to see, what we can perhaps actually expect based on the true, the evidence, right? Let's start with what I expect, right? I expect that hopefully Thailand will toe to line a little bit more with the ASEAN principles, right? Becoming a better member of ASEAN. That means no going around and have secret meetings with SAC, right? But yet again, like like I said a couple of times, right? Thailand is the neighbor to Myanmar, and of course, is a maybe have to bear the collateral damages of the crisis. So it makes sense in a way we were to rationalize the Thailand's previous move 
or previous approach to the crisis is that it makes sense that we have to still befriend the SAC, right? Because we have national interests, particularly the energy security that's in line in Myanmar, right? Thailand invested PTT, which is a Thailand state enterprise, invested in Myanmar for oil and gas, etc. So makes sense in that regard. But I just hope that Thailand will also become a better member of the ASEAN and not heading in front of the new ASEAN chairman to address Myanmar issue. Yes, I think we can all hope that Thailand will work with Laos for its chairmanship to help try and resolve this crisis. That said, though, what do you think are the prospects for the Myanmar crisis going into the 2024, maybe even 2025? you see this dragging on for many more years? Well, throughout this podcast, right, we've been talking about the role of external actors like the US, China, or even Thailand. But when it comes down to the future or the solution to this, right, I think it's for stakeholders inside Myanmar to figure it out, right? And it will not, of course, will not be finished anytime soon. I don't even foresee it finished in five years from now. So this is a marathon especially for everyone involved. But one thing is that Myanmar is now at a critical juncture in its history, right? Where it can either end up a resolutely failed state, absolutely, or reemerge as a new Myanmar. And I think that's something that the Burmese have to figure it out. And one thing for certain is that it will never be the same for them anymore. So for outsiders, like including the US as well, it is important to provide consistent and genuine support to the pro-democracy forces in Myanmar as much as possible for as long as possible. But other than that, apart from that, that's, there's only so much that external actors can do to this crisis. That's true. It's always important to remember the agency of the country that's undergoing the crisis and not only the country, but the people within it as well. I'd like to ask then, what role could we hope for the U.S. to play in the conflict going forward, do you think it's going to let ASEAN do the talking and not most of the legwork, and then maybe just implement more sanctions going forward, or maybe not even any of those, depending on how busy it gets during the election season next year? Yeah, there's so many that we, so many things that we need to consider to when and trying to get at this particular questions, right? But I think one thing that we probably needs to find an answer first is. Why did the U.S. become involved in this crisis to begin with? I mean, it didn't really have a big stake into the region, nor does it share any border. Why is Washington involved in Myanmar um, crisis at all? And like I said, my speculation is to contain China. Yeah, geopolitics. So it's geopolitical reasons. So this type of geopolitical games can go for indefinitely, right? But the game just kind of move around in the world. So I guess my answer to your question is probably we can expect the status quo to continue to go on where the Washington keep pressuring ASEAN to do something, but then that's pretty much it. I mean, there's probably even beyond the the Burma Act, we probably can't expect anything beyond that because the Burma Act itself also have its own flaws in terms of the true deliveries of such promises on what's being indicated in the Burma Act. And also, just like you just mentioned, definitely 
the U.S. is coming up to its election. And so the time and energy might be moved towards more domestic affairs. Of course, the U.S. is having its own domestic issues, economic issues. And insofar, the Biden government, the Biden administration has not been successful in their foreign involvement, right? Remember last time he decided to pull out from Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, and then the ongoing Ukraine-Russia war that U.S. kind of got involved as a part of NATO and yet have yet to find a solution to that either. So I guess in combination of U.S. involvement in different conflicts in the world, I don't think it's beneficial for Biden to campaign on that or like push harder in that regards in terms of foreign involvement. So it's really hard to tell, but I'm hoping for the status quo to continue. At least that's good enough for the U.S. It doesn't really have that big stake in the region anyway. I see, I see. Thank you. Do you have any final words that you'd like to leave the audience with? To conclude this, I feel like I have said most of the thing, but I just want to reiterate again that the conventional narratives about how the SAC is winning is not true. It's, it's actually quite the opposite, right? The SAC is not winning this fight at all. But that is something that a lot of Western listeners, right, may need to understand this, that act. But then what else can we do? What else can be done to address the crisis of Myanmar? Probably not much, right? Unless Myanmar counterparts or Myanmar stakeholders can resolve that. This is only the first step of the new Myanmar. So we first have to address this, overthrowing the Tatmadaw, overthrowing the, the SAC, whatever that looks like. And then step two, that is even more crucial, is a transitional period that they have to consider relevant actors to get to the quote-unquote federalism that Myanmar have uh, strived to be. So it's a lot of complicated issues here that needs to be distangled. But for this podcast today, I think I'll leave it here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hamadi, for sharing your insights with us. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. We hope to host you again for exciting discussions about U.S. foreign policy. Until next time, stay safe and goodbye.